I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 60 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is a towering figure in the world of soul music, singer Betty Levette. She's had one of the epic careers in music, starting in Detroit in the early 60s, suffering from years of what she calls buzzard luck and not receiving widespread recognition until decades later. Along the way, many people have learned, don't underestimate or mess with Betty Levette. She was born Betty Jo Haskins before changing her name, and she explains why in this conversation. Her eclectic musical taste was shaped by the jukebox that her parents kept in their living room where they sold corn liquor. Smokey Robinson lived across the alley. How much was she shaped by the Detroit music scene, and how much did she shape it? In 1962, at the age of 16, she recorded a single, My Man, He's a Lovin' Man, which got picked up by Atlantic Records, became a hit, and launched her on a tour with Clyde McFadder, Ben E. King, and a young Otis Redding. She had never even attended a live performance before she hit the stage. What was that like? Later, she toured with James Brown, and she recounts that experience as well. Other hit singles appeared sporadically, such as Let Me Down Easy, and tracks she recorded in Memphis in the late 60s, such as He Made a Woman Out of Me, also showed her knack for making other people's songs her own with her version of Kenny Rogers in the first editions just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Sustained success eluded her, and she didn't have a full-length album released until 1982's Tell Me a Lie on Motown. Even then, despite the single right in the middle of Falling in Love, the album got caught in label politics and fell through the cracks. She spent years touring in the Broadway musical Bubbling Brown Sugar. It wasn't until the early 2000s that Lovett's recording career finally took off. The album, A Woman Like Me, was considered the comeback and won her some awards, though she insists that she never went away. Her momentum grew with albums she recorded for the anti-label, starting with the Joe Henry produced I've Got My Own Hell to Raise. I've got my feet on the ground and I don't sleep to dream. 2007's Grammy nominated The Scene of the Crime was recorded in Muscle Shoals with alt-rockers Drive-By Truckers, and she wowed the Kennedy Center Honors crowd with her performance of The Who's Love Reign Over Me in 2008. How did that happen? More Grammy-nominated albums followed, including Interpretations, the British Rock Songbook, Things Have Changed, an album of Bob Dylan songs, and Blackbirds, a 2020 album of songs by Black female singers. Southern trees bear a strange fruit. She also sang A Change Is Gonna Come with John Bon Jovi at Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration. But I 
And she wrote a very candid memoir, 2012's A Woman Like Me. She recorded a new album with producer Steve Jordan as well. When she is interpreting a song, what does she fall in love with first, the melody or lyrics? Has her approach to material changed over the years? What attracts her to songs such as Paul McCartney's Maybe I'm Amazed and Blackbird? Blackbird singing in the dead of night. What did she learn from working in musical theater? What is buzzard luck? And when was she finally able to rid herself of it? What did Bob Dylan do to piss her off? And why did she say she's gonna slap me? She was kidding, right? You be the judge. Please enjoy the formidable and formidably talented Betty Lavette on Carol Pop. All them faces on the pictures up there Makes me remember when my table was bare Living at my mama's house Taking food from my family's mouth Before the money came Hey, Mark. Hey, thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank I really you, appreciate Dave. it. Thank you. Where are you? I am in the Chicago area. I'm in Evanston, Illinois. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, how about you? I'm in West Orange, New Jersey. But of course, if you know anything about, you know, I'm from Detroit. I do know that. Yes. No, I know. I was going to ask you about Detroit. I've been up to Detroit many times. And um, well, I was born closer to where you are now. I was born in Muskegon, Michigan. Right. Yeah. And then I know, and I know you were in Memphis for a while too. And I, I know West Orange as well. I have uh, friends who were from the, the various oranges uh, mm-hmm. when I, when I was in school uh, way back when, how much would you say, by the way, did Detroit shape your music? I'm not really sure because I'm still looking at it in retrospect, based upon what's being said now, what happened in Detroit happened with me. It wasn't going on like that before 1961 or so. So I think that it was, uh, Chicago had already become famous for the blues. Right. Uh, New Orleans had already become famous for jazz, blues, whatever. Detroit had not become famous for music. Uh, The cars affected my music more than anything else. But whatever it is that's going on in Detroit that is affecting music, and I hope it is, I was a part of that. Absolutely. Yeah, you were part of that whole ecosystem that was, you know, in the early 60s where there was a lot of music coming right. out of well, Detroit. Detroit was just becoming famous for music then. So it, it didn't affect me at all. It's kind of how did I affect it? <laughs> Do you feel like in general, like where you've been has affected your music or is it more just, it's sort of what you've learned in, in these various places. I mean, obviously you were in Memphis for a while and you had a, a, you know, more of what people call the Memphis sound with the horns, Memphis horns and everything. Um, and I'm just sort of, sort of each step along the way, I would imagine, you know, you're shaping your environment, the environment is shaping you to some extent. But they, they were as well, you know, when I met the Memphis horns, uh, they were, when, when Leland Rogers would say, where, where are the horns and get the horns. I said, well, okay, since y'all are calling the guitar players, the pickers, I'm going to call y'all the blowers. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they weren't the Memphis horns. They were just the guys that played the horns. And I, the, the, the swampers were the guys that played in muscle shows, <laughs> you know, so it's hard for me to say how much. Oh, I'm sure that 
all of that influenced me. But I think that um, I'm doing now a, a, a duo show with just my keyboard player and I. And I'm telling the people how in Western Michigan in 1946, my parents sold corn liquor. And if you wanted a drink and you were black in 1946, you had to come to my house. So we had a jukebox in the living room. And I think that jukebox musically had more influence on me than anything. I'm sure I snatched up everything from everything that was around me because I was the youngest one, actually, until Stevie Wonder. Um, but I think that, that, that what happened before influenced my music. I think that... Um, it even made me more eclectic because while I have recorded in all these places with all these different people, as I said, they were not who you know to them, them to be yet either. But the people on the jukebox, my mother liked country western and uh, the, the popular music of the time. I had a teenage sister. She liked what was hitting at the time. And I had a father who liked gospel and blues. So I think just the fact that I probably am the only singer, black singer particularly, who did not necessarily come out of a Baptist church. Right. But the soul service song in my living room, because they were black too and could not go anywhere else. And I listened to Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and wanted to be Dale Evans. And then I wanted to be Doris Day. But hmm. I was influenced by all, what I was exposed to. And that's what I was exposed to before I started singing. You know, that was only, only had 16 years of exposure. And then I started singing. Right. And you, and you, yeah. And as you mentioned, you had these musicians playing in your living room, like the blind boys of Mississippi. Yeah. Um, they were coming. Well, in I would too, think so. I was more influenced as far as my being eclectic by all those different likes of music and my sister learning uh, uh, it hurts to be in love and she was doing the bop to that and my mother was was uh, listening to Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and I never missed the country, the uh, Grand Ole Opry and my father and the blind boys were buddies and so I, I think that influenced me more musically. I'm still trying to get over the fact that you had a jukebox in your living room. I mean, how cool is that? Like, I would have loved that would be like that would be like a music, you know, music fans dream just to have a jukebox in your house. Right. Well, it was a, a part of the business. And I was uh, about 18 months old when I started wandering around in the living room and whatever. And uh, we I learned all of the songs on the jukebox all of them and they would stand me on top of the jukebox and I could roll my stomach all the way down in time with the music and all the way back up in time with the music. Mind you, I had on a diaper and a little short, <laughs> a little short top. And I always tell the audience when I'm telling that story, I say that will not be forthcoming this evening. <laughs> I think that my beginning, I mean, if from my very beginning to when I started recording was different than anyone else's. Did you have dreams from a really young age of, you know, singing in front of a lot of people or, you know, making records? 
I never thought that could happen to me. I dreamed, I probably dreamed more about being a princess and having beautiful dresses or whatever. And then I started to put that together with show business when I got about 13 or whatever. But I had never seen a live performance before it was me. Before they said, ladies and gentlemen, Betty Lovett, I had never seen a live performance people sitting in an audience watching someone. Wow. The the month before I started singing, that whole month was spent going to our dances, which I wasn't even supposed to be. You were supposed to be 18 to get in. And all the current things played on the radio were, you had to do a record hop for the DJ who was playing them. That was kind of payback. And, um, that was the first shows that I saw these people that I heard on the radio doing these shows, uh, planning their records. And I did that for a month. <laughs> and then the next month, they asked me, did I want to do it? <laughs> There's so many people who who they get the the bug for this because they're sitting in the audience looking at someone on stage and they're like... I want to be that person. I want to be in that position. But you didn't you didn't even have that experience before you were that I, person I didn't on the stage. I didn't know anyone who did that. I, I didn't know anyone who sung, although at that time, Smokey Robinson lived across the alley from me, but I didn't know it. He was a little older <laughs> than me. And uh, I, my parents uh, didn't go out. Everybody came to our house. There was always music playing. I knew these people strictly on record. There was no television for a while. I think they had a television about 1950. But before that, I had never seen, certainly not black people on a, performing. So I, I didn't even think I got, that wasn't even, a, there was no reason to desire it. I, it wasn't a thing that I, it would have been, I would have thought of it more magically because I didn't know anybody who did it. <laughs> now, were the Soulsters performing in your living room or were they just kind of hanging out and, you know? Oh, no. Well, anytime entertainers get drunk, they're going to sing. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just it. Good. So, they would do, uh, they called them uh, singings. They didn't call them performances. And when you would hear all through the projects, you're going to the singing tonight? And everybody would go to the singing. And then they would all come back to my house with it could drink. And my mother made barbecue sandwiches and fried chicken sandwiches and fried fish sandwiches. And I stood on top of the jukebox and entertained them. <laughs> hmm. Did you have a favorite singer at that point? Well, we there was a group from Detroit that were called the Flying Clouds. And my husband, you know, is a rec record historian and record collector. So right. he's been able to find records by them for me. But these people were close personal friends of my parents because they drank maybe more than everybody else. So they, they were there at my house all of the time. And the bass singer, Porter Phil Lewis, was if my parents had to go anywhere shopping, grocery shopping or whatever, they left me with him and he would sing songs to me and whatever. And I saw them on the stage at the church for the singing, but I knew I didn't want to sing in church. And I never saw anybody else sing other than the people on the records. And I didn't know how they got on there. <laughs> 
and nobody else that I knew knew how they got on there. <laughs> so at some point you ended up on a national tour with Benny King and Clive Nick Fatter and Otis Redding. Um, mm-hmm. how did, how did that happen? This was three months after the time I'm telling you about. Yeah. And, um, Otis Redding was in and out of the tour because he wasn't Otis Redding then. You have to keep that in mind. If there were two lowlier people on the Atlantic label, I don't know who it was because Otis Redding and I were the up-and-coming people that Atlantic had just signed. And record companies used to put artists together, you know, uh, on their labels. Right. And that was why all those people on Atlantic were on the show. It's just name is Benny King, uh, Clive McFadder, uh, Barbara Lynn, uh, Clarence Frogman, Henry. And then in and out of the tour as we traveled was Otis Redding. When you would sort of watch these other people perform, were you especially impressed by any of them? No, I was terrified by them because I said, <laughs> I can't act like that and sing like that. And I think Barbara Lynn is about two or three years older than me, but she had been singing and playing guitar for I can't, it's, oh my God, I just dread it when I, I have to go on almost because, but I was learning every night. I wanted the people to like me like they did when I was on the jukebox. Right. <laughs> But I didn't know how to do those steps. They just grabbed me up and uh, uh, recorded me. I didn't know what to do with a microphone cord. Of course, I kept getting tangled up in the thing. But I knew how to dance, and I looked cute. So I did what I knew, and everybody liked me, and everybody helped me. Do you think Otis Redding had sort of similar feelings of sort of insecurity because it was so early for him? No, no. Otis had been working around. uh, I mean, remember now I was 16. He was 23, 22, 23. Absolutely. Right. So all these people have been working around. I'm sure I probably would have as well after I had been bitten by the bug. I'm sure I wouldn't have stopped if, say, we had. I had met these people and they didn't like me and didn't record me. I would have tried to find somebody then who did. But the first people saw me, liked me and recorded me in a matter of days. And I, the first time I went for a microphone was the first time I went before a microphone. <laughs> wow. And you had your single was uh, My Man, He's a Loving Man. And that was picked up by Atlantic and, and uh, mm-hmm. that sort of kicked this all off. Do yes. you remember what it was like to be in the studio for that? And, and uh, you know, were you, were you sort of intimidated being, being there or did it feel like, no, home? I wanted, I was rarely intimidated. I was always extremely curious and I've always tried anything I thought of. So I was not intimidated. I would feel uncomfortable if I didn't feel I was doing as well as everybody else. But the young man who was playing a guitar on my man, uh, Leroy Emanuel, was, I was 16, he was 14. And they had sneaked him out of the house to play on the recording thing. He's become extremely big in Canada now, and I've got the chance to see him uh, and know him since he's been grown. But and he, he was and I, 14. Uh, were the youngest people in the studio. Wow. And then at some point, you must have heard the song on the radio and thought, wait, that's what I sound like on the radio. 
Oh, no, I almost I've got thank it. I was getting my hair done because I was to do a record hop that night. And I came on and the man said my name, which I had only had for about five days then. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I got up out of the chair. The, the beauty salon was just a, a backyard away from my house. And I ran home and I was it was miss me. I'm on the radio. I'm on the radio. Uh, the one who was doing my hair it was half done. <laughs> it was <laughs> extremely exciting and, and that I was um, I wasn't the best student in school. I've never been very scholastic and that wasn't what I was supposed to do. I always wanted to holler bill out, smoke cigarettes, be in the dark, wear black, throw my dress over my head and none of that worked in elementary school. <laughs> so I was very, I was just so glad that I had excelled at something that nobody else in my eighth grade class had excelled to. <laughs> Ninth grade class. And you were, so, and you were Betty Jo Haskins. Mm -hmm. What, what made you think I need to change my name? Because everybody's name was Fulana Fuluga or Eartha Kitt or something <laughs> like that. Um, and I, I, nobody's name was Betty Jo Haskins or Betty Jo Smith or whatever. And that just, just not, didn't sound romantic enough for me. So the young lady who had, had introduced me to all these people, because mind you now, I had just gone to the first dance to see the entertainers live and to see could, would one of them like me personally, not as a singer. And they all liked Ginger, who was possibly the first groupie that I ever knew. But she knew everyone. She knew everyone. And she introduced me to them all. And her real name was Sherma Levette, whatever that name was. And I asked her, because all this was happening in days. I said, they're going to record me. I'm going to have to have a name. Can I use yours? And she said, yes. <laughs> So yeah, Betty Levette. It's I mean, obviously it, it, it's got a great uh, you know great music to it. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> did it take you a while to get you get used to having that that name? Oh, honey, you should have seen me the first on this tour you were talking about because I hadn't done really. I just did a few things around Detroit before that tour started, and uh, people then knew me in other states and whatever. So I'm in a restaurant in Georgia and somebody says, Miss Levette. And I just continued eating. Miss Levette. And my road manager is kicking me, said, they're, calling, they're talking about you. They're <laughs> you. I had never been called Miss Levette. <laughs> and then you toured also uh, afterward with James Brown, right? Um, maybe uh, four or five years later, um, it was kind of like James always had a tour of his own and he was expanding it. And so he actually, just like you call any promoter and hire an artist, his, whoever did that kind of work for him called my agency, which was Shaw Artist at the time, which was where every black artist was except James Brown. He was booking himself. So they called Shaw and, uh, I was promoted to him and let me down easy. He had just come out and he was doing very well. 
and um, that's how I wound up on his tour. I recently did um, um, a thing at the Hollywood Bowl, a tribute to James Brown, that um, it, all of all of his surviving members were were there. I went about four of them of the band, and we were rehearsing. And um, I said something, they stopped me. They said, well, it didn't quite go like that. I said, stop, little James Brown Zids. I said, I worked with him. I did not work for him. Hmm. Yeah, well, it was 1965 that you were doing that. So he was, so he'd, he'd already had like, Papa's got a brand new bag and was shifting, shifting that sound of his and, and mm-hmm. James, James Brown, Brown review. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you were on that tour. Did that feel different from, you know, the one with the Atlantic uh, musicians? Like, did you sort of observe different stuff going on? Yeah, it was like being in incarceration and the band and everybody that worked with the show acted like prisoners. Because that's how James treated everyone? That was the way he ran it. I mean, you sort of you sort of see that on stage as well, that kind of snapping. Your yeah, I mean, he, finding people I've never seen a else. show. I defy anyone who thinks they're cute today to match that show. Oh, come on behind him. That show was there was no seepage of air. It was air tight, air tight. And you weren't going to take your eyes off of it if you were in its presence. It was wonderful. What was the music that you were enjoying most at that time? Like, what would you listen to on on the side when you could? I listened to less and less music every year because the more I captured me, the less I needed everybody else. Now, I only listen to music. I'm getting ready to record. I'm an extremely, I don't know what you call that, arrogant spoken seat. I listened to my recordings when I finish with them and after they come out, I don't listen to them anymore. Uh, at first, I liked uh, Ray Charles, James Brown, Marvin Gaye, Bobby Bland, and then Etta James until I learned how to holler on my own. And then I didn't need her anymore. Mm-hmm. But the guys were attractive to me, you know, as... As, as you would be attracting guys, period. But they, um, uh, Eddie Levert, the OJs, and I were very, very close because we were going through the same suffrage for so long. Um, but there aren't a gang of singers that I like, but the ones that I do like, everybody agrees they're great. We've always had such an eclectic collection of songs that you you cover, like you cover such a wide range of stuff. And, you know, in the 60s, you're covering What Condition My Condition Was In, which is that Kenny Rogers first edition song. Um, how did you how did you come across that one? I mean, it's a really cool version of that that song. And, and it's not one that people necessarily would expect you to be singing. Pat Boone covers songs. I'm a song interpreter. And I reinterpret the songs. I find cover songs like bar bands <laughs> to be just a trite term. <laughs> because I listen to all of those things on the jukebox, as I said early on. 
that influenced me most. So I always listened to the radio from one end of the dial to the other. When I started singing, I listened more to black radio because that was the only place I was going to be heard. But I never stopped listening to the whole radio. Everything on it still listened to the Grand Ole Opry. I still followed Country Western, watched the Country Western Awards. I I like songs. I like good songs. And they can come from all kinds of places. What is it about a song that makes you think, oh, this is something I want to sing. This is something I want to interpret. What's the quality of the song? Well, I have to like the melody first, which is a very disappointing uh, view because sometimes they're beautiful melodies and then the words don't say <laughs> so I, I've fallen in love with melodies there are a couple of melodies right now that I absolutely adore and my husband and I have been we listen to them periodically to see if there's something else that can be said because the words just don't hold up to the melodies but that and now because I am very personable with my audience and I look them dead in the face. So I can't say anything that doesn't make sense. If it's funny, it's gotta be funny. If it's uh, sad, I want it to be sad and I'm, I don't want to keep repeating it. I want the story to be sad, not just the sentiment. Do you feel like you need to sort of be able to live inside the song to sing it, that you need to sort of relate to the emotional life of whatever's being sung about? I usually live inside the song, but, you know, it depends. Because it sounds like you do. I, I, I am. I live my life in B flat minor. So I tend to live inside my sad songs longer than I do my silly songs. It should be the other way around. I'd be less blue. <laughs> mm. I went to the doctor and you know how they give you that little thing at front, like, do you ever have this? And does this ever happen? And they said, do you ever feel blue or or depressed. I said, I'm a rhythm and blues singer. That's how I make my living. <laughs> <laughs> when you're hearing the melody, you're hearing the words and connecting with the emotions. Is there also a sense of, I have an idea of something different to do with it. So I'm not just going to sing this song. You know, this is, this song is arranged beautifully the way it is, but I have a different take on it. And, uh, you know, and, and so I want to be able to do that. Does that come to you immediately? Or do you sort of, you know, live with a song for a while and say, all right, I'm going to, I need to sort of shape it this way. No, so it it's comes my to song. Me immediately. When I hear the song and know that I want to sing it, I know I don't want to sing it like that. Those thoughts come together. And that's one of the things that makes me like it is I like it and I want to sing it. And I know I'm not going to sing it like that. And I know I don't like that music, but I like the song. <laughs> <laughs> And has that changed over the years? Like do you, like you were interpreting songs in, in the 1960s and the 1970s, and you're interpreting songs now in the, you know, 2010s, 2020s. Has, has your approach changed over the years and how you, you not interpret at these? Not at all. Not at all. No other man let me down. You see, I've been so free. Everything can sway back yonder when Joe made a so you had the song, He Made a Woman Out of Me, uh, that you recorded in Memphis. And uh, the character in that song is a guy named Joe Henry, who's the one who kind of 
forcefully in a way that's kind of troubling maybe makes a woman out of your character who you're singing in years later you're recording these grammy nominated albums with the producer musician joe henry did you and joe henry ever talk about like did he ever say hey i'm not i'm not that guy from your song you know what i don't think that we ever did. <laughs> joe is uh the the um i found um he made a woman out for me to be extremely comedic and that was why idiot and uh joe henry is just one of the world's remaining uh 100 gentlemen i mean he is just so suave and <laughs> debonair <laughs> handsome you don't your thoughts don't even go that way when you're with him <laughs> Cause I knew his music like in the nineties and then I know that he's produced a lot of people and, and including you. And then I was, I was going back and listening to some of your older music. I'm like, this song's about Joe Henry, different Joe Henry. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. I don't know any of the music that he's done on anyone else. Cause it didn't make any difference when anti said here, we want you to meet this young man. His name is Joe Henry. I uh, had chosen pretty much chosen the songs. I went to his house, I sat on the floor at his feet and I sung them all to him, a cappella, the way I wanted to sing them. Then he hired musicians and we recorded the tunes. <laughs> Do he and Steve Jordan have different, and Steve Jordan I saw play with Booker T and the MGs years ago, um, mm -hmm. and, and he's playing with the Rolling Stones now. Do they have different approaches in the studio? I started with my man and now I'm, doing Bob Dylan albums. We have the, Steve and I have the exact same approach. We came from the exact same place. I've been privileged enough to do a lot of things that a struggling black artist would not have the opportunity to do. And so has he as a black musician. As a white musician, you're privy to many, many more things and your approach to music as is different, just as even being an orchestrator, Quincy Jones' approach to things was a little harder. It was a little edgier. And uh, I, I longed for him to produce me for all of my career. Mm. And didn't, I didn't get to him until recently. But Steve Jordan and I came from the exact same place and were privileged enough to go to some of the exact same places and it has he was able to play on the night tonight show i was able to do bubbling brown sugar he was able to go with booker t and the mgs i was able to go with james brown we've done the same kind of things and when we start to put the album together we are talking about the exact same thing no matter how i say it Joe Henry feels everything that I'm doing because he's a very feeling person, but it takes more um, explaining on my part. I don't play anything. It takes more explaining on my part. Joe understands me, but that's not his immediate thought because that's not, he was raised in the ghetto. <laughs> So yes, you and Steve Jordan are just coming from more similar places or the same mm -hmm. place. And, and and also just having gone through, you know, for years and years, you know, what it's like to be in, in the record industry and, 
you know, not get treated well a lot right. of the time from what I can tell. Yeah. One of the things that's, as you well know, one of the things that's that's crazy about your career is that you, it seems like you were on about 25 different labels and you were recording all these singles for these labels. But so many people think of in terms of albums and, and lately you've been putting out album after album and it gets nominated for Grammys and is acclaimed. But your first album didn't come out until 1982. And, and up till that point, you were making music, but it was kind of put out on like this single on this label and this single on that label. Like how frustrating was that stretch of time when, you know, you're recording all this music, but you're not having, you know, albums that are coming out? Oh, it was extremely frustrating, but it was something to strive for. You had to actually do something to have an album at one point. Now all you have to do is be the artist and being the only one is still holler, wear a size six, make a good record and be over 50 or 60. That made me odd. So then I was album worthy. <laughs> it's too bad I was so damn old, but that's when I became album worthy. Up till that time, I would have had to sell a whole gang of records before anybody would spend the money on an album. That's the way it used to go. You didn't just get an album because you were at the studio. <laughs> right. And also because these singles you were putting out, Let Me Down Easy on Kala, and you're putting out some other songs on, you know, My Man, He's a Loving Man on Atlantic. And then you have uh, these songs on, you know, Memphis on Silver Fox and on SSS. Well, I, and, call uh, this, I call this my fifth career because each one of the things, each one of those were segments. My Man was the first segment. It charted. That started a bright future. And then Let Me Down Easy came out. That charted. I did one of the biggest television shows in the country at the time, which is the one that is on the Odessa video. And uh, it, that was the beginning of the second career. Then He Made a Woman came Out of Me came out. Uh, SSS International, Nashville, all of that was getting ready to make, were making really good rhythm and blues records. Fame was second ready to happen. And then bubbling brown sugar happened. She's going to be in theater. I learned to tap dance. I didn't learn to act, but uh, I can do musicals. <laughs> and then another recording came out, a disco recording came out and stopped that. And then the disco thing didn't work. And then it was start all over again. <laughs> So they they kept giving you more reasons to have the blues and to keep singing the blues, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, they kept being B-flat minor, that's for sure. Yeah, Bubbling Brown Sugar. So this is you're in the touring company of this of this Broadway musical. And and you and excuse me, this Tony Award winning Broadway musical. Tony Award winning Broadway musical. This is on Thank your own you. website. So yeah. <laughs> This is this is from I'll just read it from your website because because your website has an excellent bio, by the way, it says, says you worked with both uh, Charles Honey Coles and Cab Calloway while in the show. Mm -hmm. and, and you were in the touring company for almost four years. So that's a long time being on stage doing that kind of performing. Mm -hmm. But it added just eons of dimension to my stage presence because 
a nightclub singer is not being directed and is not being told where to stand or what to do or what the best angles are or any of any of that. You're not being told that. Uh, it's just very raw. But in theater, you're being told every move that you make, every gesture of your head, every outstretch of your arms, your the pinkies hanging off, whatever. And all of that, that I've been able to add in increments to my being on stage has helped me of certainly being as old as I am, be very poised, step correctly in, in heels, know how, where the light is, how many steps I'm taking, how long I've been hollering. Everything in theater is very measured. And I, I like that. I, I, I mean, it's such a disciplined thing. I wouldn't like I didn't like it well enough to want to do it forever, but I learned so many things from there. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for that experience. So did your shows afterwards, like the concerts you would do immediately after that experience, were they noticeably different from the ones beforehand? Well, not so much that as when I could not, when I got back to Detroit and Everything was completely new again, which meant all the promoters, all the clubs, everything was new. Who is Betty LeVette? She used to, and she was. <laughs> and I could go then because I had some theater experience. I was able to walk into a small room, lay across a piano, sing The Man I Love a cappella and take someone's gig. <laughs> hmm. I've seen that you've talked about like how you had buzzard luck. Buzzard luck was your bad luck. At what point did the buzzard luck go away, assuming that it did? <laughs> well, when this fifth career started, this fifth career is the first one that has had any kind of substance to it. It has taken me um, all over the world except the Middle East. The fifth career also happened with the internet. So I was able to take the 20 fans that I had collected with each, all, each one of those careers from all over the world, like my theater people had never seen me in a nightclub. The nightclub people had never seen me in a theater. But with the internet, I was able to bring all of them together all over the world. And then the records of People who were kids, actually, when I when they first started following me, many of them are millionaires now, and three of them produced these records on me. Uh, he made a woman out of me, let me down easy lives, and souvenirs, souvenirs from France, um, let me down easy lives from Scandinavia, um, and a woman like me from uh, here in this country. But all of those people were fans. But now they're grown people. One's an attorney, one owns a record company, another one owns a record company. And they remain fans. They put those three albums out at the same time. I uh, was able to get um, Mike Kappas because of uh, Dennis Walker and the uh, woman like me to sign me, even though I had no manager, I had never sold any records substantially, but he stuck me everywhere on every festival, 
everywhere in the world. And I was able to gather up my 12 little fans and collect some more while I was there and build this fifth career, which has been, I've sung for two presidents. I've done the Kennedy Center Honors. I've performed at Kennedy Center here just recently. They, they do some concerts now, some kind of jazz concerts. And um, so I've, I've done, I performed, there isn't a venue in New York that I ever imagined working that I have not worked. I've been at Carnegie Hall 12 times. I've done the Lincoln Center, uh, Madison Square Garden, the Apollo, Radio City Music Hall, the Rainbow Room, the Carlisle Hotel. <laughs> I've done everything that I ever dreamed of doing. Just don't have any money. But <laughs> <laughs> you should. Uh, <laughs> so it's the it's the fifth career. See, people are like th third time's a charm, but with you, it's really the fifth time is That's a charm. I have buzzard luck. <laughs> there you go. Well, so a woman like me comes out in 2003 and and really tr attracted a lot of attention. And you uh, got the Blues Foundation's Award for Comeback Blues Album of the Year. And mm -hmm. and comeback is even sort of an interesting phrase for it because it wasn't even was it was it a comeback or was it like a you know, hey, you finally noticed sort of thing. No, that was what I explained to everyone when I got the award. That's what I explained. I, this is not a comeback for me. I've been here all the time. You all are now just coming where I am. It was a catch up award for them to catch up with you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a almost 20 year sort of stretch of this fifth career. Um, it's, it's exactly 20 years of, the, of this fifth career. I got a husband. Took me fifty years to do that. <laughs> you've enjoyed it. I, I assume. I assume that you've enjoyed the fifth career. What is it? What is it that you've liked most about it? The, I mean, the, what I everything I asked for. I wanted a husband who thought that I was the greatest singer in the world and who knew something about music. I wanted to appear at all those places I just named. I wanted to be recognized in bathrooms and restaurants and whatever way my peers in Detroit had been when I was out to lunch with them and the people would come to the table and not even know I was sitting there. So all of those things. But as I said, it's um, I mean, they don't give me a million dollars a shot on each one of these things. <laughs> it cost me a great deal now to be Betty LaVette, you know, so I um I need to be bigger financially, and I'm really getting tired. I'm hoping that I won't get too tired before I can work as I want to, you know, the days that I want to or how many I want to do a year. Right now, I'm working, but I'm still doing it, you know, I'm when I don't want to do it. You know, just over the years, as you know, from having done this for so many decades, just creative people there's always one thing or another that's that's preventing creative people from being you know compensated the way they should and you know i don't know whether it's a it was a more exploitative situation you know when you started out where there are all these record companies giving these kind of terrible deals or now where it's just hard to get people to buy records and to pay for music um you know when it's not live music well i've landed between kind of between a rock and a hard place because the industry is changing but 
I'm hoping that I've got enough done so that um, I can kind of ride a little bit with what's happening now. It's you almost have to be Ray Charles now or Tina Turner. You have to. I was that was hard what I was working on trying to become before all of this happened. I didn't quite make that, but I am halfway there anyway. As I said, I'm recognizable now in gangs of places that I never thought I would be recognized. And if I cannot run out of energy, maybe I can get the rest of it done. So how did you end up singing the the Who's Love Rain Over Me at the Kennedy Center? Because that was kind of this knockout performance. And again, a song that people wouldn't necessarily think, oh yeah, I think I think Betty Lovett's gonna sing this epic. <laughs> but it's great. Thank you. My um marvelous no every recording in the world husband wrote to the Kennedy Center Center Honors Boat by email. He heard that they were honoring George Jones. And my scene of the crime album had just come out, which contained a tune by George Jones. And he wrote them and sent them that. And um, Michael Stevens, who was the music director and coordinator, um, heard it and loved it. He said, we, I'd love her voice and we'd love for her to be on it. But so many people are coming from Nashville to honor George Jones, but we actually only have a tune left. And it is by The Who. And Kevin told me, and I said, The what? <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out, my husband is a huge Who fan. He knew the tune. I practiced it for two or three days. And then when we got to the honors and I told um, Rob Mathis, the music director, I, I can't sing this song as it exists. He said, well, how can you sing it? So I just sung it for him, acapella. And he told the band, he said, take about 35, 40 minutes <laughs> and come back. And he wrote me that arrangement. Which that quickly, perfectly without it, it didn't. It's not it. It's that much of a song. <laughs> it's, but it, um, but it, it got a lot of things done. It was, it was on YouTube and taken down over a thousand times. It, um, it, it got a, a lot of work done. I call it. My three stooges slap <laughs> right in front of me when I walked out on the stage was Aretha Franklin, who had not seen me in about 20 years. Right above in the balcony was Barbara Streisand, whom I have always thought was one of the greatest singers in the world and always wanted her to know that I was, too. And right over from her, in front of me, right across from Marisa, a few seats down, was Beyonce, whom I wanted to know that I was part of the bridge that she's coming across on. Mm. And there was Pete Townsend, whom my husband was there standing in the wings, staring up at him. 
<laughs> so it was just, it's actually a four stooges slap, but I usually just put the women <laughs> in it. <laughs> so got a lot of work done that day. <laughs> yeah. Pete, Pete Townsend blurbed your book. He's on the back of your, uh, your book, uh, A Woman Like Me. He says, Betty Levette is a voice from the wilderness. How do we miss her for so long? A woman like me goes some of the way to explain. Now she is here, an extraordinary discovery in a blues voice. We must hang on to her tightly. Was that the first he'd heard you? Was that the Kennedy Center Honors? That's what he said. <laughs> wow. And that performance, is that what led you to do the uh, that album, Interpretations, the British, British Rock Songbook? Yes, the music director for the... Um... Rob Mathis, who I said was the music director and coordinator, um, produced, gave me the money to do the album. And Rob Mathis, who was the music director, who did the arrangement for me, did all of those arrangements on that album for me. And he is just a, a consummate conductor and arranger. I was with um, Anti, and Anti loved um, the concept. and. Um, bought into it what was the mix of in those songs of like the songs that you sort of knew and you thought oh i love this song i would love to do it and songs that were maybe introduced to you like hey listen to this one maybe maybe this would be a good one to check out i think i heard about five of them. i had necessarily said i wanted to do them but when i listened to them i saw a way to do them but i'd only heard about five of them before in my life <laughs> Like like Paul McCartney's "Maybe I'm Amazed" being one of them that you just you I know, had, completely I, I take ownership it. of. I liked it, but I I it never meant anything to me until I got married, because I was absolutely amazed that I let this man. I don't even let people watch me rehearse. I still don't let him watch me rehearse a lot, but hmm. <laughs> he is just in every facet of my life now, and so I sung that for him because I'm just amazed. Each line by line, I'm I'm amazed at what I let him do, and I never let anybody else do this before. <laughs> so yeah, you obviously you found a personal way into that that song and and really make it your own. Um, you, like you, the the word, I um, had heard it in passing. Uh, I can't remember all the songs on it, baby, but I had not heard. I'd never heard blackbirds. I, which really? I, which was just on this last album. No, but I, when I did hear it, I told my husband, I said, he's singing about me. <laughs> because all my, well, so many of my friends are British and I know they call their women birds. Yeah, no. And he's, and he said that even he sort of saw that song as a sort of civil, civil rights era. Yeah. My, song my husband and, told and me a story about it later, but I didn't hear it when it was out. They didn't play it a lot on black radio. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, the, and and the word is, you know, another Beatles song, and it's not a song that people like when people are sort of listing like their top 20 Beatles songs, they often the word's a wonderful song, but it's not one that people sort of come to immediately. And, you know, again, you you come at it at a different angle. I'm like, oh, there's a song that's completely, uh, you know, yours now that, uh, you, you know, we sort of know from this version from Rubber Soul, but this does not sound like that at all. <laughs> and, then, and then you get George, and then you get George in there with "Isn't It a Pity," which is another you know great song. Mm -hmm. Is there something about those Beatles and Beatles-related songs that particularly work for you know, or particularly ripe for reinterpretation? I like um, all of the, 
most of their writing, I, I'm not I don't care for them to listen to, but I, I like all, most of the songs that I've heard, except the really silly ones. But I like uh, most, well, you know, early on, I did uh, record it with a little help from my friends. Yeah, there's a there's a local show, uh, Breakfast of the, the Beatles, by um, there. Terry Hemmert is a local DJ in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, who's always on on WXRT, and she's always been a huge Betty Lovett fan. And so she'll play like one of your your covers of you know one of the Beatles or solo Beatles songs on there mm-hmm. all the time. I know that you have you have fans for that. And then you did a, you did another album, Things Have Changed, which are Bob Dylan interpretations. And I'm wondering sort of what are the specific challenges of covering say Dylan songs versus, you know, these sort of British rock band songs. Cause he's a very would, different kind of songwriter. We would have to do, we would have to do another show. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get glasses because they knew that we all knew that I wasn't going to be able to remember all those lyrics and especially the many that I changed. Um, so we knew I was going to have to have lyrics on stage with me. So I had to actually start wearing glasses for Bob Dylan. Hmm. <laughs> did he, did you get any reaction from him when you had that album come out? No. And I'm really pissed about it too. <laughs> no, I'm, oh, I'm, I, I tell you, and I will tell everybody I was in, um, I think we were in Spain or Italy. I, I can't remember which, but I had just come off the stage and it was a real broad walkway between rows of stages on, I mean, uh, dressing rooms on one side and rows on the other side. And you would have to kind of cross the little walkway to get to the other side. And um, I saw him. They had, everybody had to stand behind these little barriers because he was coming out of his dressing room. And the man told me I couldn't come out until after he'd come out. I said, child, if you don't get your hand off my dressing room door, I will choke you. <laughs> and I came on out of the dressing room and he was walking, going to where he was going. And I saw his, the person walking with him, them talking in each other's ear. I found out later that his bass player knew me, who I was, and he didn't know me. But he told him that was me. And he ran across the little gangway and kissed me full on my mouth. Bob Dylan did? Yes. And then walked on on the stage. (laughs) So I left. We were leaving. I was leaving. He was going on. And I, I didn't ask him to kiss me. But him saying anything about this album would have been a great, greater help to me. I've been kissed before. So... I'm, I I have a little issue with him. Mm, you didn't ask but, for him to kiss you. He just did it. No, yeah. You know, I, I felt, he, he felt like he could take that kind of liberty with Kevin's lips. <laughs> then he should, if he had, the thing of it is, he's so goddamn big at this point. If he had said, I hate Betty Lovett's album, that would have at least caused, caused a lot of people to stream it. <laughs> Well, I assume he has a positive, uh, I mean, however he expressed it, 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 it would, it would imply that I he has a positive, positive reaction to, to you. Say but. something out loud. Yes. The I reason understand. that I, 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 I hold that against many of the Motown artists as well. Say my name because you are so prestigious that will help me. So I'm, I'm not, you know, if I think that you're really good, 
I have Kevin write people's names down on my music sheets if I feel like their name needs to be said. But I ain't a whole bunch of people crowd around talking about what a great singer I am, and they're keeping it to themselves. Do like me did, write it on the back of my book or something. Right. Well, the back of your book, you got you got John Bon, you got John Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi said very good things about you. Elvis Costello, yes. who who's a real musicologist on top of everything else. And both of them have come to see me, uh, you know, in my performances here in New York. Yeah, and Pete Townsend. Paul That's Schaefer. how you show you really like somebody. <laughs> well, I mean, I like the kiss. I would imagine I look pretty cute. I imagine I could have had any man to kiss me. <laughs> all right well we should we need to get bob dylan to say you know listen to your record and say something and, you know, pull you up on stage and like do a duet on one of those songs that's buddy. what i'm talking about people are crazy times are strange i'm locked in tight but i'm way out of range i used to kill things that change when is your new album coming out in the april or may what kind of songs are we going to hear on this record? Some different ones. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to trick you into talking about no, it. They're, gonna be, they're they're different when the um, when the tunes come on. I it surprises me when I hear my voice come on behind it or with it. So it's um, they're different. They're different. I mean, that was the same way it was when I did um, a woman like me. I'd never sung all these rock songs and pop songs, especially by women. So every time my voice came on, like on Joy or something, I said, that's me. <laughs> what right now is the is the part of all this that gives you the most happiness? Is it sort of having, you know, performance come together in the studio? Is it actually being on stage? You know, what 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 part of it is the most joyful? Well, baby, being on the stage is has always been the most joyful. But I'm just now I'm I'm just tired. I'm little and I sing really, really hard. And I try not to slough any of my shows off. I am doing a great deal of sitting on the stool, but I still get up. I mean, but that's only when I'm with uh, just my keyboard player. When I'm with my band, I'm dancing and in heels. And I'm just, I want to do it, but I'm just so damn old. <laughs> <laughs> they call that such a late date. <laughs> The acknowledgement and the comfort in knowing that somebody somewhere in the world is playing something by me right now. You know about the Odessa thing? No. Boy, I will slap you. Oh, don't do that. These little children called Odessa have sampled Let Me Down Easy. Oh, okay. I did. I did read about and that. And they have had 750 million views. That is the kind of help that I need. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I had, I had read about that, but I haven't, I, I need to go check out the song. I have not uh, called up the song. I, I'm going to add to the number of views for it now. Okay. Thank you so much for talking with me. You're so fun to talk to. You really oh, are. Thank you so much. This is such a treat for me. And, uh, you know, you think you're going to get to Chicago anytime when you're putting this record? Oh, I also I always do. Cause yeah. you, know, I've, you know, I've never had a flop record in Chicago. Of course Ever. not. No, we're, we're, we're the right <laughs> city for you. Now, when I come, I'm at the city winery. And I was just there like maybe six months ago or seven months ago. 
Well, That's primarily down. where I am now in Chicago as a city winery, unless I come in, you know, for some kind of special something. Yeah, no, that's a great place for, for you to play. I'd love to meet you. Absolutely. No, I will I will come and introduce myself for sure. And I'll try to bring Thank you. I'll try to bring Bob Dylan and uh, tell him. You to know what? I you, you definitely get beat up when I see you. <laughs> I'm going to bring, you could bring Dylan on stage with you, which would be more fitting and then say, all right, but to say, I'm not going to sing with you until you say something about my music. (laughs) And then he'll, he'll be like, oh, you're the best. And then, and then he'll be all set. I love it. (laughs) Thank you, baby. That's it for episode 60 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Betty Levette for opening up so much in this conversation and in her music. Go to BettyLevette.com. That's B-E-T-T-Y-E-L-A-V-E-T-T-E.com for information about her, her music, and upcoming tour dates whenever she announces them. Don't miss her when she does. And keep an ear out for the new album she recorded with Steve Jordan. It's due out next year. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake a master interpreter of this particular podcaster. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And please follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. 